This is your host, Tim Powell, from the Oil & Gas Council. Today's episode is a recording of the Minerals and Royalties Aggregation Strategies webinar that took place on August 25th. This discussion was led by Matt Chisholm, COO of Provis Energy Services, and was made up of a panel of five different speakers from various aggregators focused on basins across the country, including Sanjit Bhattacharya, President of Redstone Resources, Travis Lowe, Partner of Arrowhead Energy Partners, Charlie Matter, CEO of Case Energy Partners, Chris Bentley, CEO of Bellator Resources, and finally Matt Wisecheck, managing member of Par City Holdings. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what the speakers had to say. All righty. Well, good morning, everyone. And for those of you who are joining us from Europe, and I know we have some registrations in Australia and Singapore, if you're still awake, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Tim Powell. I'm the head of Americas for Oil and Gas Council. And it's my pleasure to welcome everyone to our inaugural Minerals and Royalties webinar series episode. Before we get started, just a a little background on the Oil and Gas Council for those who are not familiar. We're uh, an executive level networking platform that works with clients throughout the year to enhance their BD efforts. We make vetted introductions on their behalf, trying to help them buy and sell deals, place capital, and form new partnerships. In the Minerals and Royalties space in particular, we have a minerals podcast, we have two minerals conferences, we partnered with Provis Energy Services on their Pulse Reports, and we're, of course, doing these webinar series. All of those things help enhance our efforts to get reach into the market, a better understanding of everyone's strategy, their deal flow, who has capital, who's fundraising, et cetera, so we can connect like-minded executives to, to enhance their, their activities. So for those of you who are listening or are not familiar with us, I'd love to have a call with you and see if there's a way to tap you into our network to, to help you out through these remote times where we're not networking face-to-face and, and meeting face-to-face. So enough about us. Let's, let's go ahead and jump in. I'm going to very quickly go around the horn, introduce everybody, and then, and then hand it off to Matt Chisholm, our moderator. So starting um, from Case Energy Partners, we have Charlie Matter, founder and CEO. They are a privately funded minerals and royalties aggregator that manages a portfolio of minerals across 15 states. Over the last four years, Case has deployed over $100 million with a primary focus on the Permian and Haynesville. Then moving uh, around the horn a little bit further, we have Matt Wisecheck, managing member of Par City Holdings, which is a privately funded minerals and royalties aggregator focused in Appalachia. Prior to founding Par City at the end of last year, Matt was the general counsel of Three Rivers Royalty, the Appalachian affiliate of San Jacinto Minerals. Next is Chris Bentley, founder and CEO of Bellatorum Resources, a privately funded minerals and royalties aggregator with a focus on all the major Texas plays. Before founding Bellatorum, Chris worked several years as a landman for a Texas-based land brokerage firm, heading up several large acquisition projects. Prior to that, he served over 14 years in the United States Marine Corps. Next is Travis Lowe, founding partner of Arrowhead Energy Partners, a privately funded minerals and royalties aggregator that is focused primarily in the Rockies, including the DJ Bakken and Powder River, with a secondary focus on the Eagleford and Haynesville. Prior to founding Arrowhead Partners in the summer of 2020, Travis was a COO of Wolf Resources, also a Rockies-focused mineral shop. Next is uh, Sanjit Bhattacharya, the president and founder of Redstone Resources, a self-funded minerals and royalties aggregator that has a four-basin platform focused in Appalachia, in the Anadarko Basin, the Permian, and the Haynesville. 
And last but not least is Matt Chisholm, the COO of Provis Energy Services and our moderator today. They are a data-driven land services and advisory firm. Prior to joining Provis, Matt, also uh, a veteran here, served over 18 years in the military as part of the United States Air Force. So Matt, I'll hand it over to you to, to kick off with a few slides. Thank you, gentlemen. Looking forward to a great discussion. Uh, so what we'll start off with is Tim's uh, been gracious enough to give me a little time to uh, share a little bit about Probus Energy, and uh, and then we'll move from there to uh, some slides that'll help frame our discussion for today. And I'll take a couple minutes, and I appreciate you uh, giving me the time to speak. I'd also like to extend my welcome uh, to all of our experts today that are in the trenches. So a little bit about Probus Energy Services. Uh, as Tim mentioned, we are a data-driven company. We believe that, uh, basically we believe in three things. We believe in land, uh, the truth that is land. We believe in data and information. And then we believe in the the relationships between uh, data and land. And what we like to do is there's a synergy between those things. And when we can put creative critical thought to uh, land data uh, and uh, identifying those relationships, we can believe that we can provide truly powerful, strategic information that uh, empowers our clients to go out there and, and really impact the market and uh, be uh, more successful than they would be uh, otherwise. So uh, after our plug here, now we'll uh, move on to kind of our how we're going to frame the discussion for today. And Matt, let me jump in here real quick. So I, I forgot to launch our poll so everyone can take a minute. I just launched it. Answer, agree or disagree. There are no margins to be made anymore through the ground game. It has gotten far too competitive. So let's just give everyone a minute here. And Matt, you can continue your conversation and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of see how the results come in. What we'd like to see is if our, really our ground game experts here on the panel can sway the, the results here by the end of this, the discussion. All right, perfect. So the way that we're going to uh, kind of define some terms here is uh, we'll talk timeline wise. Uh, so if you look in, you know, from left to right across the, the deal here. So, you know, August 2019 through March 2020, we'll call that the pre-COVID, kind of the, the steady state prior to the demand collapse with uh, both the price war as well as, uh, you know, COVID. So then we've got the, the trough, which we hope is, you know, from March 2020 through June uh, 2020 is really the dark times there. And then uh, coming out of that uh, from June to present is we're in the middle of this basically demand collapse recovery. So, I realize that recovery is an ongoing process, and we hope that we recover more than what we are now, but we'll kind of consider this uh, the jumping off point for what the world is going to look like post-COVID uh, with the uh, demand collapse recovery here. And, and we're about 80% disagree, 20% agree, roughly, are the results, by the way, in the poll. So we'll see if everyone can influence that by the end of the discussion. All right. And then moving on, so looking at uh, uh, EIA commodity predictions for natural gas, um, you can see that you know, the EIA is fairly bullish on natural gas as far as its future there. And what's interesting here is you know, they're showing you know, 314 for gas uh, average over 2021, expecting that you know, production declines is the most in the Permian region. And they expect that uh, low crude oil prices will reduce uh, the associated natural gas output. And then production, will, as it begins to rise in the second quarter of 2021, in a response to higher natural gas and crude oil prices. And then commodity predictions for oil showing a uh, similar uh, price recovery. So 2020 average for WTI, $39 over 2020, and then uh, in 46, 2020, uh, so $46 in 2021. And then we asked ourselves a couple questions as we were going through this. Uh, the first things were, you know, are the 
you know, the ends of the tailwinds of that lost production enough to offset lost demand, uh, I think is an interesting question. And also, you know, really what does demand look like in a post-COVID price collapse economy? Moving on from there, what we took a look at was operators uh, CapEx uh, from 2019 to 2020. And the interesting takeaways from here is oil-weighted and multi-basin operators have the largest activity reductions. And really, also what we're seeing is, you know, natural gas prices have taken less of a hit during the downturn. And again, you know, to help frame the discussion, how does this affect the mineral market? And what you can see here is, as you look at the graph, you know, super majors and multi-basin operators, really significant CapEx uh, reductions compared to maybe some of the natural gas players there. In this next slide, what EnergyNet is seeing in their trends for marketed deals um, EnergyNet is seeing that royalties and minerals make up the largest percentage of total sales and total packages, and they expect that trend to continue, uh, increase in the number of packages coming to the market in the next couple of months. And what they're seeing is that gas-heavy, proved, developed producing assets are transacting more frequently than oil assets. And really what it boils down to is that buyers and sellers can agree on the underlying commodity price, and that's really driving those marketed deals. And so then what we decided to take a look at was we basically took what we consider to be the core counties in each of the basins that we're going to discuss today. And we just took basically a volumetric analysis of uh, mineral deeds per month over the past year. So since July of 2019, uh, how has the volume of mineral deeds uh, gone in those core counties? What's interesting about, and let me uh, caveat this with, this is not number of acres it's rather just number of actual instruments. So the number of mineral deeds here. Now, so what you can see by month is this next chart here, which uh, is what we'd expect that the overall volume of those has decreased. Um, but if we parse this out into specific counties, there are some interesting trends uh, that kind of start to emerge. And we took three uh, big takeaways from this. So if you look at Reeves County, uh, down 92%, uh, year over year from, from July 2019 for their mineral deeds. And so, you know, we asked ourselves a couple of questions is, you know, why is this happening? Maybe it points to uh, a bid-ask spread difference, potentially the, you know, elimination of brokers based on that bid-ask spread uh, difference. Uh, looking at Midland County, Midland County is not seeing a, uh, a change at all year over year from July 2019. And, you know, maybe that has to do with that bid-ask spread as well. Um, and then what's really interesting down there at the bottom is uh, Tyler County, West Virginia, uh, up 112% uh, year over year. And so, again, uh, we're asking ourselves why. And, uh, you know, our biggest thought there was, you know, commodity difference from uh, the other basins. Hey, guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalties space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. You know, what is everyone seeing basin to basin regarding that bid-ask spread? Um, and we'll kind of move on from that question. And so maybe we'll just start with uh, Permian Basin and we can hear from, uh, from Redstone. 
Hi, good morning, gentlemen. So, you know, for us, so what we've seen in the Permian Basin is, you know, pre-COVID, the bid-out spreads were quite significant. And it was a challenge because a lot of landowners and a lot of people that own minerals received 20, 30, 40 offers. So it was highly competitive. After COVID, <clears throat> what we're seeing is it was very difficult to actually transact for the first 90 days. I don't know how my colleagues feel about that, but the bid-out spread, the expectations were so high with a lot of landowners and mineral owners. So for the first 90 days, we weren't really able to transact. However, as prices have moderated, they've reflected on the pay stubs uh, and pricing for a lot of landowners. I think expectations have also moderated. So now we're slowly uh, having an uptick on transactions where people are still thinking that we were going to rebound back to $55, $60 oil. They were receiving X amount of dollars. Now, you know, $35 to $40 oil is kind of here to stay. And people are realizing, okay, maybe the oil prices will not go back as, as fast as, you know, a lot of people predicted. So I think transactions are actually happening, deal flow is happening, and also expectations from multiples as well as price per NRA is also moderated. So we are seeing an uptick. All right, fantastic. Chris, are you guys kind of seeing the same thing with what you're, how you guys are transacting? Yeah, I mean, here's what I would say, though. With It just depends, right? Because, and, and I know everybody, uh, you know, hates that, that answer, it depends, but it is, it is a numbers game. I think most people on this panel would probably agree with me. It's about how many mineral owners can you talk to? They run the gamut from having unrealistic expectations to being able to talk about those things that Sanjit brought up about, uh, you know, access to capital for operators, uh, the, the commodity prices being kind of stable where they are and, and you know, the likelihood of, of new wells getting drilled anytime soon. You can have those sophisticated conversations with a mineral owner and maybe get to a, a number that makes sense for both parties. But I mean, we're still seeing everyday mineral owners that, you know, that are still getting letters from these, I'll call them phantom groups out there that say they're going to pay $20,000 per acre on their offer letter. And then, um, so that's what they're, you know, they're hanging on to that number. You know, we see, we see the full spectrum, but for us, what we did was increase our volume of contacting mineral owners. And so we're still able to get deals done at a price that makes sense for us. Hey, Charlie, what do you think about, how do you think about that strategy wise, you know, the volume game, kind of the shift uh, to maybe a volume game, or do you have any other ideas on, on strategy there uh, specific to the Permian? Day? I mean, I think Sanjay and Chris both hit on great points. I agree with Sanjay that the hardest time to transact I've found is right after massive volatility. So stability helps A&D transactions. And, you know, it takes four to five revenue cycles for people to get those checks to start realizing what's the new normal. And then once that new normal is established, it makes it easier to transact. And then to Chris's point, like, you know, ramping up your, your, your volume, I think can always help because uh, you're turning over rocks that maybe you weren't turning over. And you're trying to, to create a new normal in the market. And so, having those conversations and educating those owners uh, is a good way to do that um, versus them just getting, as he said, just phantom letters that, that may or may not make sense, uh, which we see a lot of that go on. So uh, that could be a bait and switch offer. So yeah, we, we faced that same battle right after everything happened, you know, in, in March, it's like your car was in the shop. It's like, if your car can go 80, you know, we were going, we were going 20 and it's just taking time to get that car going back up to full speed as an operation, just because we had COVID and people in and out. And so all the logistics that go in with having to adjust your pricing and the people that work for you and all of that. So it's just been a lot as far as just getting, uh, having to not only adjust pricing, but also adjust uh, working remotely and getting people back in the office. So 
um, we're, we feel we feel like we're we're finally starting to get the car back up to full speed. Guys, I'd, I'd like to jump in quickly. I think there's a a differentiation we have to paint out here between undeveloped deals and more PDP heavy deals, specifically in the Permian, because there was so much development activity in the Permian. And the rig count has dropped so much that bid ass spread is largely being driven by the un- the uncertainty around development timing. And you know, you guys and your peers out there are being not being in a position to underwrite uh, a lot of the undeveloped activity because you just don't know what's going to happen. But there's that from what I've heard in conversations, there's that expectation that that development timing or that development will come back, or just hoping it'll come back from the landowner perspective. Can you? Just comment on, you know, some of the disconnect from that perspective, because oil prices are balancing out at around 40 now, but that hasn't really helped some of the bid ass spread dynamics in areas that are predicated on development timing, right? Anyone want to jump in? So I'll go ahead and and chime in. Um, You know, I think that you have to have a long-term view of the asset class. and, And I think most end buyers, if you will, while they've, you know, some of them are kind of still sitting on the sidelines or in shock, if you will, or trying to figure out how to, how to reevaluate, everybody understands that the whole reason there was this willingness to pay PUD value, you know, undeveloped pay for the undeveloped value and not just do a discounted cash flow analysis on these Permian or, or Eagleford properties in the Carnes Trough is because they know that there's long-term value and the, the stacked pay. So I think that, you know, a lot of mineral owners, if you want to acquire acreage, you're still going to have to get aggressive on the, on the PUDs in those highly competitive areas. I think where we, at least, you know, I can only speak for Bellatorum, we try to pick up PDP assets in, in areas that are not competitive, where we know there will be stable cash flow for a long time. So we look at the productive uh, life left on the well, like we're Central Basin Platform, Eastern Shelf, Panhandle, Barnett, areas like that, where we can pick up really cheap PDP. And it may not be the core sexy acreage that everybody wants, but we can still get uh, yield for our investors and distribute cash flow. And then that allows us to still get aggressive in the in the competitive areas. You know, that's how we've handled it. I'm not saying that I'm right and that's the way everybody should do it. But, um, you know, if your business is acquiring mineral rights, at the end of the day, you know, you're going to have to get to a number or you're just not going to get any deals done. And so you got to get creative on how you, you underwrite certain deals. Yeah, Chris, I think you bring up a really excellent point, you know, as far as, you know, strategy goes, which I would like to, you know, I'd like to get to, um, you know, how are we going to build our portfolios as far as, you know, what we see as the, as the exit strategy, you know, whether that's buy, hold, flip, whatever that happens to be. So I would like to hold on to that thought. And I, I've taken a note here to, uh, to catch back up with that. Moving around the horn to a uh, different basin though. And I'd, I'd kind of like to hear what, uh, you know, what Par City, uh, Matt, what you have, what your thoughts are on uh, the Appalachia and, and how it's looking for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we um, were a little bit more fortunate than some of the oil heavy buyers in that natural gas was depressed pre-COVID. You know, looking back at some of our check stubs and realized pricing, we saw over $2 back in November and December 2019 production. We've been sub two ever since. So, you know, we don't really see um, the effects with the landowners quoting or citing commodity price in the bid ask spread, particularly because we're focusing on primarily undeveloped acreage. So again, natural gas was suppressed before this with the lack of associated gas 
throughout all of this. It's only helped gas prices. We have a little bit of a heat wave right now. Uh, so I think the spot right now is close to 250 for September delivery. So again, commodity price, fortunately for us, hasn't been uh, too much of an impact. Yeah, and when I was speaking with uh, Matt last week, what I thought was interesting was uh, it seems like, you know, those mineral owners uh, have been, uh, they've been dealing with low commodity prices for a while. And in a way, it's almost a preview uh, for some of the, maybe the oil-weighted basins as far as, you know, they've kind of been through their pain and now they're, you know, they, they've seen it. They've and, and maybe it's instructive for, for what looks like in the other basins uh, going forward from now. And so I think that's a really interesting perspective that you have there, Matt. Um, let's move to a, a, another basin and, and kind of maybe talk, uh, you know, Bach and DJ and move into Arrowhead. Uh, Travis, you have any thoughts on kind of what we're talking about as far as, you know, bid ask spread and, and, and how you guys are transacting there? Yeah. Um, you know, first, if I could just take a minute to thank Tim and the Oil and Gas Council for you know, putting this, this panel together. I think it's great. Um, and I especially want to thank uh, Matt and Chris for their service to the country and for all their uh, remaining servicemen and women out there. So thank you for your service. Um, in the DJ and, and Bakken specifically, you know, I, I still think that there is a fairly wide um, bid-ask spread still. Uh, I think that, you know, we've been our own worst enemy is that we've trained these mineral owners, uh, you know, through our repetitive letters and calls for the last, you know, two years that they should expect a certain price. And then we have you know, a price uh, decrease, a heavy one towards the beginning of this year. And I think for us to get that to narrow, we're going to have to see very stable prices, uh, you know, for the next six to 12 months. You know, deals are still getting done, but most of the deals that we're seeing are driven by what we like to call life events. You know, folks that are, you know, hurting for, for money for, you know, I want to send my kids to college or, you know, I've got some kind of health issue that I need to monetize my minerals. And I'm glad that we can you know, be there to uh, take care of those those folks and, and, you know, acquire their minerals. You know, we're, we're constantly obsessed with the underwriting and, uh, you know, we, we focus on it a lot. And, you know, I, I get, I, I'm a little bit, uh, you know, on the other side of the fence with Chris. I, I you know, he's, he's looking for very you know, creative ways to get deals done. I think it's important to, uh, you know, remain steadfast with your, your underwriting and trust it. And, um, you know, the most important thing that we can focus on is buying wealth. Um, and, and that's the best thing that we can do and control for that. So that's what we're seeing. As tied to life events, what about uh, retreats to, you know, what you guys would consider core, you know, as far as the where? You know, I always like to think that we, uh, we, we bought in the core anyways. Uh, we, you know, we, we never really wanted to, uh, you know, stretch out. You know, we're going to try to remain under, under the best rock, under the best operators. But, yeah, you, you know, you won't find us buying, you know, non-core acreage. We're pretty disciplined, and we, we like to sit, you know, right in the core of the core. Under great operators, of course. Great. Thank you. All right. Let's move on the map a little bit uh, southeast and uh, let's talk Haynesville and uh, what you guys are seeing there. And uh, uh, Charlie, I'd like to start with you. You know, we haven't done we haven't done a ton in the Haynesville in the last two years. The, the transactions that we have have been small. And so I think that I think it's a great basin to buy in. And I think there's opportunities there. We just we've had so much focus in West Texas that our Haynesville, our Haynesville deals that we've done are just small and fractionalized. So we found it difficult to buy sizable deals in Haynesville, but the deals that we have bought were great deals. Chris, Sanjay, do you guys have any thoughts on that as well? Yeah, actually, I do. Actually, you know, Haynesville actually has been one of our favorite basins for the four uh, multi-basin platform that we have. We've been uh, buying the Haynesville about th- for the last three years, really, and we really believe that's probably the most undervalued basin in North America right now. We were struggling with the Permian three, four, five years ago when we looked at valuations 
that were just going higher and higher. And not to say that it didn't fit somebody's model, but it was just a, a tough deal for us. So we really looked at the Haynesville where you have 374 trillion cubic feet of gas in reserves. And the tier one rock was really priced to maybe 10 to 15% <laughs> with the respective counterparts in the Permian. So we've been aggregating under the top tier base operators there. And we've aggregated almost 10,000 acres in the last three years. And now with the rise of natural gas, we really find ourselves in a very good position. And as of yesterday, we recently divested about 7,000 of those acres to, some, to the public markets and a few other uh, partners. So, and, and near term and short, I mean, short term and near term, we do believe the break even economics for the, the best in class operators are about $1.70 to $1.75. And what we found in the Haynesville is most of the operators are pure play operators, where their entire focus is Haynesville. <laughs> be it Indigo, be it Vine, be it Comstock or Rockcliffe and Harrison Panola, be it Athon that are Canadian pension fund backed. And uh, they're just getting better and better. Their EORs <laughs> were X three years ago. And every year their EORs are gaining between 10 to 15% momentum. So what they were three years ago, now that the, the deep dive that we've done, we're finding out EORs have increased by at least 30 to 40%. So their, their AFEs have come down by 10 to 20% and their EORs have come up between 30 to 40%. So from a rate of return perspective, for us, it's the number one play right now. So we are very bullish on the Haynesville. Well, that's fantastic. Congratulations on all that. Uh, Chris, what about you guys? Have you guys uh, found the same thing? Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, you know, I agree with, with both Sanjit and uh, Charlie, you know, that it's a great place to buy. It has its own culture, if you will. I grew up in East Texas. I'm, I'm from there. It's, uh, you know, it's a different culture than West Texas. A lot of the, the mineral owners actually live in East Texas, whereas, a lot of times the, the Permian owners live all over the country and, and not necessarily in, uh, in the Midland area. So there's a cultural aspect to it. It is very, the, the tracks are very small. It's hard, as uh, Charlie mentioned, to get a sizable acquisition. But that's Bellatorum's bread and butter is buying, aggregating smaller deals. And, and we're happy to go out and do the smallest deals and, and um, do all the hard work to aggregate those, those smaller pieces. Yeah, Chris, uh, you know, leave it to a uh, military man to bring it back to strategy. So uh, I, I appreciate that. That's, uh, that's fantastic. But I do, I, there are a couple of things that I'd like to hit on uh, or just to think on as we move around the map a little bit more, you know, uh, where we're putting our, our investment dollars, you know, pure play operators, you know, multi-basin operators, you know, how you guys think about that. And I really like that idea of yield versus, you know, multiples on invested capital. And, and I think those are good you know, we'll, we'll get the conversation there, but uh, as we, as we move around the map, you know, you guys could be thinking about those uh, as we continue around. So Anna Darko, uh, Sanjit, what are your, you know, what are your kind of thoughts on that? That's been a, a great rise and a great fall, as most people would say. You went from 130, 40 rigs to down to 10. You know, we've been there since uh, a long time and we started aggregating the stack and the Anadarko and Scoob, uh, really amplifying that aggregation from 2014, where we've aggregated about 45,000 acres, of which we've invested about 40,000 of it through multiple processes. So we're pretty familiar with almost every section in the entire area. What we see now is really the focus on what operators have the capability of returning after this, after the COVID outbreak and after this precipitous decline that we've had. And we find that there's just a few operators out there that we feel that actually come back, such as Continental being one of them, Aventive, which bought out Newfield for 7.7 billion. They still have the wherewithal and the fortitude to come back, and they actually are. And just one or two other key operators that we've been following. But if you're going to buy an Anadarko, it's really hard with 10 rigs in the entire state, with only two or three right now in the Anadarko Basin, to remodel anything. 
So the, the real focus should be PDP uh, as well, at least 50% PDP of any asset, probably a little bit more, and the rest being ducts or permits. Because right now, you could have a great operator, you can have a great rock, but if you don't have time of development, it could be a year, it could be four years before some of these companies come back, if ever. So that's the real focus. But we do believe that markets will come back, and I think between $48 and $50 oil, a lot of the break-even economics will start coming in in the black, and there's a lot of, I would say, not the top three, I would say the two of them that I mentioned, but the you know the fifth or the tenth operators, they'll start coming back. Uh, they do have acreage. They have spent billions of dollars in that play. Uh, they're just looking for a reason, but I still think we need at least a 10 to 15% commodity upswing before a lot of other operators come back. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris.com at nobleroyalties.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. Yes, Sanjit. Thank you. I appreciate that. And then, uh, all right, last but uh, definitely not least, back to Texas uh, with the Eagleford. Chris, what are your thoughts? Bellatorum. You know, we love the Eagleford. Um, you know, it's uh, it's also has its own unique culture. Uh, there's There's a lot of big ranch owners that, you know, that own the minerals and the surface. And so you've got to really do your upfront data land. You know, we do a lot of upfront title without even having a deal so that when we go after properties in the Eagleford, we know the small owners to target who's likely to sell, who's not, especially in the Carnes trough. I mean, in, in my experience, you're not getting a deal done in the Carnes trough if you're trying to go after uh, whales, you know, and so um, or at least not at a price that makes sense. Right. So uh, we like to go after the smaller owners that, that you got to have. And, you know, I've learned this lesson the hard way over the years, but geology is so important in the Eagleford too. There's so many faults and areas to, uh, to make sure you're not buying where, where it'll never get developed because, you know, there's, there's a fault there. So earlier this year, we brought on a, a geologist that's just really um, experienced in the Eagleford and, and that's helped us get more targeted with our Eagleford acquisitions. But we love the rock there. I mean, the, with the Austin chalk, you're getting new stack pay in certain areas where you can get three benches and in, in some tracks that you acquire and you get, you've got Oventive, you know, formerly in Canna, really fully developing a tract, you know, like every bench before they move the rig. So that's really nice uh, when you get those flush, you know, cash flow for, for quite a few months as they bring on new wells on every bench. And so we, we love the Eagleford. We're going to, we want to continue to buy there. And uh, I think you guys noticed that we were one of the most active buyers there last year. I mean, we slowed down a little bit this year, like, uh, you know, Charlie mentioned as, as we all probably have, but um, we love it. We want to continue buying there. Great. Thank you on that. So what I was hearing as we were kind of going around the map there, and I appreciate you guys bearing with me on that. What I was hearing was, you know, basically where, where's the market? You know, we're, I think we're all being maybe optimistic that the, the market has reset and that mineral owner expectations are, uh, are maybe a little bit more tempered with, with reality. And I got an interesting question from the crowd about, and maybe we can frame this question around that, which is a lot of the price drive in the last 
few years has been on PUD expectations. And so, you know, how do we look at that going forward as far as, you know, with rig counts may or may not be increasing in the future. You know, we, we hope they do. We think they will. But, you know, how, you know as, a, as an investor, you know, how do, I, how do we look at PUD and how do we think about that as it, as it compares to what really is the market and how do we talk to those mineral owners? The person who asked the question said, why should I have to pay any PUD value, you know, if we don't have any line of sight to development? Well, you don't have to, but you probably won't get a deal done in core areas. I mean, it's just a reality, right? And so it's, what is your capital structure? Are you a patient capital structure? What are, you know, there's so many nuances to this business. You can't just, it's not like we, you know, we control the acquisition price and what the mineral owner's expectations, what the investor's expectations are. I mean, if you're backed by institutional capital and they give you uh, valuation metrics and you can't get a deal done, you're not going to be in business long, right? I mean, it's just the, so good luck getting a deal done in the Carnes trough for the core areas of the Permian without paying some PUD value. I could be wrong and I could be totally disconnected from reality. I, I don't think we are, but I don't know if anybody's done a discounted cash flow valuation in the Permian or Eagleford in the core areas in the last, I don't know, five, seven years. Has anybody gotten a deal done just by offering a mineral owner a, a PDP valuation? I mean, it, unless it's fully developed maybe and you've got some flush cash flow on there. But if you're, if you're trying to buy ahead of the drill bit, in core areas, I don't see you, uh, you know, getting discounted cash flow valuations done and getting getting acquisitions done with that method. Yeah, you know, I'll uh, I'll say a few words. You know, I, I think I, you know, Chris does have some good points. What we've seen is three different types of pricing. One is if it's just a tier one, if it's just one bench area, I think those are the prices where the the prices have really fallen the hardest at the end of the day, where the time of development is just very uncertain. I think on the as you get to two and three benches, what we're seeing is if there's a two bench area, you'll just get a very small amount of PUD value, at least from our experiences. But where you can actually maximize PUD value is a combination with some PDP, where most funds basically, when they have a prep rate they have to meet before they hit their waterfall and their exit, they're able to actually buy with maybe 20 to 25% PDP, where they can actually model it out and you know, they can actually wait it out until the PUD value actually comes in play, whether it's two years, three years, or four years. So I think if it's just a pure putt play, um, maybe Chris has had better luck with us, but we always find it a challenge to pay <laughs> top tier pricing, basically all putts, because right now, because about a 70% decline in the in the Permian, especially in the rate count, it's just hard to model it. You don't know whether it's going to be a year, two years, three years. So it's just hard to basically model out what kind of returns you're going to make, at least without some line of sight, some development. If you have that, you can at least give a little bit of money to putt development. If you don't, at least we find that as a, as a big challenge. Yeah, I think that's I think that's driven buyers, whether it be public, institutional. I think a lot of your institutional public capital, I mean, they, people want to mitigate their risk by buying in the, in the best places. And so the core tends tends to shrink because prices don't work on these on the fringes. And so areas that were areas that were tier two and tier three, uh, where there was transactions happening because they were mostly but value aren't happening anymore or the prices are so dramatically different, but that's just, you know, a way to mitigate risk is to buy in the, under the best operator in the best rock. Uh, and so, and, and, and that's, that's not so easy to do, but I agree that both Sanjit and Chris that, you know, it, it's hard. It's, it's impossible to buy purely PDP in an unconventional play like the Permian or and it, you can be more agnostic to where you buy 
if you're just buying PDP because it's easier to underwrite. If you're buying PUD locations, you really need to understand the benches and the complexities. And so uh, it's hard to be an expert everywhere. And, and so those that are laser focused in, in either one basin or a few basins can, can generally move a little quicker. And uh, No, I, I agree with you, Charlie. And one thing I'll add to this is the one thing that is we really focused on, especially with the, where the pricing environment is, is you really, not just the rock is, of course, we'll take a look at as well as the operator, but what is the true capex of that operator? <laughs> For example, if an operator has a billion dollars, but they're basically in three different basins, what percentage of their capex is being exploited in that basin and how many rigs does that have? You know, then you can also take a look at the amount of acres in the surface, like leasehold acres that actually capture with the amount of dollars that they have. And then you can break down a model. If you have $300 million, if your AFE's cost, you know, $6 million, you can only do 50 wells, but if you have 20,000 acres or do you have 200,000 acres in that basin? So that also makes a big difference on time of development. So that's also something we take a look at. And are these operators drilling one well just to hold their acreage? Or are all these operators going in and doing full pad drilling? That's also something we have to be highly cognizant of. So that's just one of the other few things that's really come into play, especially when now everybody's fighting just to break even and just to make a little bit of money. So the true strength lies in, in the capex of that operator as well. Matt Weischek, do you want to jump in on that? I remember when we spoke, you talked about the pure play nature of a lot of Appalachian companies being a driver for your strategy. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the many reasons we're bullish on Appalachia. I mean, all the operators we buy under EQT, range resources, CNX are all pure play operators. So despite commodity price, um, you know, they don't have other basins to look at to devote CapEx and OpEx. So again, our, our philosophy has always been if we continue to buy under the core of the core, under these core operators, We'll, see, we'll still see development, but like everyone else has said, it's there's still a question to the timing of development and, you know, how much weight do you give to bud or to, to permits even, uh, given the state of things. But again, we do appreciate the pure play operator uh, base and outlook for, for what we're trying to do. Yeah, so I think we've effectively moved on to strategy, and I appreciate you guys uh, pushing the conversation, you know, that direction. So, you know, as we're here, what I'd like to hear from is, you know, pure play perspective as a uh, not an EMP, but rather from a from a mineral aggregator perspective, you know, pure play versus multi basin. I realize that you know most of you guys are are multi basin, but you know, what are your thoughts on that as far as you know maybe your risk profile, or rather, you know, how you guys are building your portfolio specifically for your uh, investment objectives with your investors? Anyway, I'd, I'd like you guys to kind of move through that, and uh, we'll start with uh, maybe um, Arrowhead uh, and Travis. Sure. <clears throat> so you know, being a you know, we're, we're in multi-basins, but, you know, the, the, a lot of our DNA comes from the, the DJ. And I think that, you know, our competitive advantage in the DJ is just that, that we've been working it for 15 years. You know, we know how the operators, you know, drill and complete wells. We know generally about the companies in, in a great amount of detail, you know, whether it's Noble or PDC or, uh, you know, or extraction or, you know, Great Western, um, you know, we, we know these companies in and out. And, you know, we have, we have drinks with these folks, we, we have lunch with these folks. And, you know, we've, we've spent a lot of time, um, you know, coming from one of those operators, you know, you just kind of learn how they think. And you can, you can really, you know, utilize that information to be effective in the mineral buying. So being a pure player and knowing a basin in and out with all, you know, all the details that you possibly can makes, makes it really, really difficult to compete with. As far as how we're building portfolios for our investors now, um, you know, I kind of point back to an original, you know, one of the earlier points that I made is that we, you know, we, we're continually being obsessed with the underwriting. And, and now 
that we're, you know, in oil heavy areas, you know, the, the, the speed of development has really slowed down and we have to really understand what the possibilities are of some of that acreage being pushed out two or three years and build that into our underwriting. Um, and another, so we're really focused on the diversification inside of our portfolios, not necessarily from, you know, the, the asset itself, but the operator, the status of the asset, and when we think it'll be developed. So really kind of having windows that we can point to of certain assets coming on and, and be, you know, be sure that there's assets that will come on in year three or year two or year one helps us diversify our portfolio a little bit more. Other things that we're focused on is, is hedging. Um, you know, if you're, uh, everyone that, you know, kind of is on this call, I would imagine, um, had some interesting experiences when price corrected at the end of this, this, or the beginning of this year. And, uh, those of us that were hedged were a little bit protected from it. And, you know, we look at it at least on a monthly basis. We're, we're constantly looking at our options and, and looking to employ those options, um, to, you know, make sure that we're protected. And then, you know, lastly is that, you know, this, this is on one of the points that Chris made is that the duration of capital, the capital that can hold longer is a, you know, a, a really big competitive advantage, especially right now. Um, so, you know, that's really how we're focused on billing, you know, building our, um, you know, strategies through, you know, di asset diversification, hedging, and then, and, and really focus on duration of capital. Matt, I'd like to jump in real quick. There's a really interesting question from the audience asking if there's a discount being placed on federal acreage. To pull that back, I think the underlying tone of that is the political headwinds that are affecting mineral strategy and how you build your portfolio. You know, Travis, for you, you guys are still focused on the BJ. That's a bit contrarian for, for obvious reasons. A lot of the, the political challenges at the state level. And then with the elections coming up, in my conversations recently, a lot of folks have asked me, you know, Tim, are you seeing a move away from the, the federal lands in the Delaware? Are they being perceived as too risky? So for the Permian players on this panel, I'd love for everyone to address that. And then Matt, over to you in the Northeast. If Biden were to win, there's some concerns about what's going to happen with some regulations in the Northeast as well. So it, it affects everyone on this panel in different ways. I love everyone to kind of jump in, maybe raise your hand and, and Matt will call on you. I'll just say that if, if Biden gets elected, we actually, our, our VP of Land and Corporate Development wrote an article about what does a Biden presidency look like. Look, I think within his power, he can affect development on federal lands and offshore, right? So if you ban fracking and stop offshore drilling, then where's the, the capital and the production going to go? It's, it would actually help, you know, Permian and Eagleford development uh, increase, in my opinion. So I think for us, um, <clears throat> we don't really buy on federal lands as well. But I do believe that, you know, whether it's Democratic or Republican, at the end of the day, I mean, I, I do agree with Chris. I think sometimes capital is going to find its way back to drilling no matter what. I think one way or another, if you just, you know, stick to it, at least what we're doing on non-federal lands, I don't really think it's going to affect us to a, a large degree. I think business will continue as usual. There may be a 5% variance, maybe a 10% here and there, but, you know, we're still going to need oil. We're still going to need natural gas. Business will continue. Yeah, uh, Matt, at Par City, do you care to comment on that as well based on, you know, kind of your position up there in the Northeast? Yeah, so we don't uh, buy under federal lands either, but, you know, we, there are potential repercussions around pipelines, particularly, um, which could be difficult. I mean, we're already pipeline constrained up here as it is. But uh, again, I agree. I don't think that uh, Biden presidency institutes a complete fracking ban. I, I don't think that we see much of a change. Maybe there's some tax implications. Uh, but we have, I've been interested to see, we have had a lot of landowners actually 
in discussion cite the potential of Biden presidency, uh, particularly as it may rate, relate to capital gains rates uh, for a reason for them considering doing something with their minerals now and trying to complete a transaction in you know 2020. So that, that's been interesting. I didn't really expect that, but uh, we have seen that. Great. Thank you. Uh, Charlie, what about you at uh, Case? Um, you know, with a, a Permian override, what is, are you guys uh, federal at all? When we bought some, but not a ton. I think you just have to be careful on your underwriting. You know, what's the development timeline look like for buying federal a federal override or an override in federal leases? I, I think that Matt made a great point that, the, the you know, conversations with owners, big or small, long-term capital gains implication, a, a change in long-term capital gains is, is impactful. And so I think that's people are thinking about that. And it's a point of discussion or should be a point of discussion. I, I think development as far as, yes, pipelines and areas that are infrastructure constrained. And then if you bought a federal over, if you bought an override in federal lease and put a bunch of other locations on there, you know, that's, it, it makes it more challenging now to underwrite just because that's just a factor. It may, it may or may not impact, but it's just a factor that's in people's minds. It's just like buying in California. Um, there's some great opportunity. You know, there's some great, areas to buy in California, but you just always have to keep that in the back of your mind. I'll be honest, guys. I really appreciate y'all's uh, pragmatic approach to politics. Uh, this is uh, quite refreshing. But uh, what I'd like to go next is is kind of thinking about, you know, as you guys, you know, position yourselves for exit and whatever that looks like, whatever time frame that you're looking like, how does size play in as far as your capital commitment and, and how you view, you know, you view that, uh, that ultimate strategy, that ultimate uh, exit? Does anybody, you know, care to comment on, uh, on, you know, where size plays in as far as, you know, your ability to transact, your, you know, your ability to, to exit? I think size, and I'll just start with a few words. I think size does play an effect, especially because it'll attract larger funds. Most of the larger funds, they don't want to do a half a million, a million dollar transaction. They prefer to do larger because it takes the same amount of work, whether to do a million dollar transaction or it's a 10 or $20 million transactions. Um, I will also say, I think a lot of the funds now are so much more focused on PDP because there's a lot more risk out there because a lot less rigs out there in the U.S. that the more PDP you have in your asset, the more aggressive that they'll get on their offer at the end of the day. So I think if you're more weighted on that PDP and if it's a, uh, at least a, a minimal size of, say, X amount, I think it'll attract uh, you know, 70 to 80% of the larger buyers. We've had a couple of examples that just happened to us in the last couple of weeks between, I would say, 10 to, between that 10 to $20 million range. I'll jump in a little bit too, you know, to echo what Sanja said is, um, you know, he's, he's seeing better metrics on the, you know, the PEP side and, uh, you know, kind of the exit. And, you know, we, we build our funds specifically to capture that, that, you know, PV value that you can get from a, you know, producing asset, you know, from a non-producing asset, you know, you, you, you can sell it for PV30, you know, PB25, as long as you're being, buying at PD, you know, 50, PB40, you're doing okay. But we're seeing that we can sell, you know, PDP at better metrics. So we're, we're, we're buying assets and just letting them mature. And that, that points back to our duration of capital perspective. You know, we're not looking to sell off large packages. You know, we can be a little bit more specific and, and let assets develop and then get them to PDP and then sell them for their great metrics. And I agree with Travis. I think that that incubation period where you have a permit where you can probably sell that for PV20 or PV25, yeah. waiting that, that eight to 12 months where you can sell from PV10 to PV12. There's your upside that you can actually make where instead of making a 10 or 20% return, you can really make yes. your reps. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Travis, you had uh, shared with me uh, last week, 
you know, your thoughts about, you know, letting the asset tell the story. And I, I wrote that down as a, as I really liked what you said there. And I, I was wondering if you wouldn't uh, expound on that a little bit as far as, you know, how you mean versus, you know, with this, you know, yield vehicle versus your, you know, multiples on invested capital. Yeah, sure. You know, we, we've kind of found that buying, buying a PDP asset, it's going to, it's going to cost you, right? It's, it's a, it's a more expensive asset. And if you're building a fund to, uh, you know, try to generate you know, returns and then multiples on cash flow, it might be hard to generate multiples on cash flow when you're buying at PD20. You know, the market's kind of dictating that, you know, PDP assets, you know, go for that. So, you know, our argument is, you know, have, have multiple funds, you know, focused on, you know, one fund, fund focused on, you know, capturing that PDP value that's focused on delivering yield rather than, you know, multiples on cash and then have, you know, another type of vehicle that's focused on pre-drilled minerals that allow those minerals to, to you know, to mature. And, uh, and that gets back to my earlier point of buying pre-drilled that let them mature and sell them for, you know, two times what you bought them for. Um, but they're, they're, that's different investment premise, right? So, so final question here, Matt, we'll kind of wrap it up and go around the horn. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, I, I kind of want to weave these two things together, uh, basically looking at the future, right? So as the market stabilize, stabilizes, rebounds, you know, what is your all's thoughts on, uh, and I want to make a kind of a two-part thought here, which is how does capital come back into the market and kind of we'll weave that into our closing uh, argument here, which is that the mineral space is too competitive. Uh, brokers and aggregators will no longer be needed in the market uh, because they'll be squeezed out. And so let's kind of look at that. You know, what's the future look like? What does capital look like? And is there a place for uh, brokers and aggregators uh, in the market? And uh, I'd like, I think I'd like to start with um, Matt down there at, uh, at Par City. Yeah, I, I think it's going to take some time um, for, for large capital to come back into the market. I mean, like everyone said, I think that uh, these groups look for a lot more stability and certainty, if you will, um, as much certainty as you can get as it relates to commodity price, timing of development, uh, which operators are going to emerge out of this price crash. On the flip side, I do think that there, there still is going to be plenty of room for aggregators, uh, particularly, like Sanjit said, you know, a lot of groups want to do the 10 to $20 million deals because it is as much work to do the million dollar deals with sub million dollar deals. So I think there's going to be a place for aggregators to go do all that hard work. And I think that most groups would be more than happy to pay a little bit of a premium to, to do one transaction as opposed to the 20, 30, 40, 50 plus uh, that it took to put that position together. Thank you. Uh, Charlie, at, uh, at Case. I think it's becoming more and more of a challenge. You know, you have, you have different aggregator categories. You have kind of a low-end aggregator, you have a middle market aggregator, and then you have kind of an end public or institutional. And so, and there's family office. I mean, there's just, there's different, there's, there's long-term hold perspectives, or if you have a fund that wants to hold it for the long haul and you have a fund that wants to, you know, opportunistically divest along the way. So I, I think that like Matt said, there's that capital will come back into the space. I think we're in a low interest rate environment and we're going to stay there. And for that reason, I think the capital will, will stay, will come back in and, and, and continue to buy this asset class or, invest in this asset class. And so I think there's, there's going to be a place for aggregators. I think that that's going to ebb and flow um, based on the market and the demand. And so I, I'm, I, there's a, there's a lot, it's a, it's a big marketplace. It's over, you know, it's a, over $500 billion marketplace and there's over 12 million mineral owners in the U S. And so I think that there is opportunities there for aggregators. I think they're going to have to think, you know, like Sanja said, and Chris has said, and 
others have said, I mean, it's just, it, it looks different now than it does. And so I think that you need to have capital. You need to have underwriting. You need to be able to go in there and, and um, understand what you're doing and bring value to the marketplace, not just send an email. Yeah, great. I like that. That, that, that discussion of value is fantastic. Sanjay, how would you respond with that? And by the yeah. way, while we, while we wrap up here, guys, I'm going to launch the poll again and, and see if, if we get different results. So Sanjay, continue. I think there's two different kinds of capital. I think you have one is institutional capital. Uh, that comes from the market. And for that institutional capital to really go in, they are, have to be able to effectively underwrite that asset. And the only way they can underwrite the asset is if they have a certain amount of rate count and they have a certain amount of predictability of time of development. So if they are able to actually procure that in a certain basin, then I think they'll be able to come in. You'll, you'll, you'll see the drop in the Permian with retrospect to what happened six to 12 months ago compared to what it's, what's happening in the gas place. Where albeit, you know, Appalachia, and especially the Haynesville right now, a lot of the money is moving in because most of those bases have had anywhere from a 74 to a 92% drop in rig count, where the Haynesville has only had about a 40 to 50% drop in rig count, and it's actually coming back up. That's one sort of capital with risk capital. You know, the other uh, portion of capital are the aggregators, perhaps on the ground, that have a little bit more higher risk tolerance. If you have that, I, I truly think that there's opportunities in every basin where you can find, find deep value buys with the right best-in-class operators that have the right CapEx. And if you really target those peer play operators in those basins, I do believe that uh, there's significant upside there if you're willing to take a little bit more risk. Great. And uh, to move it along, uh, Chris at uh, Bellatorum. Yeah, I just think uh, the hardest part of this business is buying assets direct from legacy owners. And, um, you know, if people think that, you know, I'd be curious to, to know who's saying that there's not going to be a space for aggregators because the bigger buyers that, that only are willing to do those bigger transactions, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of $10 million or $20 million mineral owners out there to, to go after, you know, unless you're dealing with an aggregator. So, you know, and, until the day they're willing to do the smaller transactions and, and get their, you know, roll their sleeves up and, and get into the courthouses and, and deal direct. You know, just a quick plus. I think that the institutional quote unquote smart money should be backing groups like ours that are buying on the ground. That's where we generate alpha and uh, and is buying these deals on the ground level. So we'll be happy to take some institutional capital and still do the smaller deals. Chris, thank you. And finally, Travis at Arrowhead, you know, I know you guys have a blended strategy. How would you respond uh, to the question and, uh, and kind of what, you know, playing off what everybody else has said as well? You know, uh, I think that, you know, we, we're in a very cyclical business, right? If you've been around enough, you've seen prices at 30 and 100 and back down to 40. So I think with capital, you'll see the same thing. Um, you know, we're, I'm excited. I think that this is a great opportunity to get, to get into our space and deploy capital. If I'd have been sitting on this panel and said each to one of these guys, you know, last year, how would you like to buy, you know, $40 valuations? We all would have been like, hell yeah, let's do it. So we would have been excited about it. So I'm excited about it. I think it'll, it, everything will be in a cycle and it will come back. Um, as far as the squeeze, I think it's an interesting question. I think that, you know, the squeeze from traditional just mineral brokers is going to get hard for those mineral brokers. I think what you have to kind of do is match the ground game with the capital to hold, right? I, I think that if you, you take out that, that intermediary, intermediary level of, you know, value capture that the brokers kind of get and you have a, you know, a, a group like ourselves or any, anyone else here that has their own kind of ground game that can match that up. I think that's where the mineral brokers will get squeezed. The matching of the capital versus the good ground game. Thank you very much, Travis. I appreciate that.
And I just want to say thanks to number one for Tim for asking me to, to moderate. It's interesting when you uh, get into an environment like this and you, and you're around some true experts, you know, you realize all the holes in your own knowledge and it's been awesome to, to, to learn from you guys and to, and to hear a bit about your strategy and, and uh, kind of point, point me in the right direction as far as, you know, uh, making myself smarter. And I hope you guys out there in the audience felt the same way. I can't say how much I appreciate uh, learning and uh, listening to you guys talk. And so thank you. And uh, with that, I'll throw it over to uh, Tim. Thanks, Matt. Um, everyone, fantastic contributions. I think it was a great discussion. We had some really good activity in the Q&A. We didn't get to all of it. We will be addressing that offline. This is going to be posted on our Minerals podcast. And I, I will try to interact with all the speakers separately. Maybe we'll have a kind of a, a bonus Q&A audio clip added to that as well. So I uh, appreciate everyone's participation. And uh, we look forward to keeping in touch and, and seeing everyone who attended on the next Minerals webinar. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed on September 15th at 9 a.m. Central, the Oil and Gas Council will be hosting another Minerals and Royalties Focus webinar with a debate format that explores the pros and the cons of building a Minerals and Royalties portfolio around diversification versus specialization. If you're interested in getting registered to tune in live, then please send me an email at tim.powell at oilcouncil.com or visit our website at www.oilcouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks, and see you next time.